Well, good evening, folks. Good evening and welcome. My name is Ken Kersed. I am the pastor of outreach here at University Presbyterian Church. And it is great to see you all. It's great to have you here. Um, we have a great evening uh, ahead of us. Uh, we have titled this uh, A Conversation on Faith and Culture. Well, you might wonder, well, what does that mean? And we're not quite sure. We'll have to see how the conversation actually takes shape. But, but at the root of this conversation is the notion that the church in society, the relationship between church and society has changed. And we now live as a community of faith in a gospel-resistant culture. And particularly, perhaps some of you can relate to this, particularly here in the Northwest, that we live in a context that is particularly, seemingly particularly resistant to the good news of Jesus Christ as the church currently is communicating and living that out. So we want to engage in a conversation tonight to explore what might be the new sort of conversation that we could embrace as a community of faith that might more deeply uh, engage our culture, resonate, better translate the gospel, and invite people into a life-changing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Is anybody up for that? Well, we have two tremendous uh, conversants. I was going to go with conversators, but I didn't think that was quite, quite right. I'm not sure conversant is a, a is a, a word either as a noun. Um, but anyway, we have two tremendous leaders in this conversation that we desire to have tonight. Uh, first, uh, Dr. Daryl Guter. Uh, Dr. Guter is the Henry W. Luce Professor of Missional and Ecumenical Theology at the uh, Princeton Seminary. He's been serving until recently as the dean there. And uh, we have particularly enjoyed his presence with us over the last month as our visiting theologian in residence. And he's been working with our staff. He's been teaching in various sessions and helping us think through this conversation between church and society. I could go on and on about his, his resume and CV, um, half of it's at least in German, at least half is in German, so I'm not, I'm not going to delve into that, but his body of work is extraordinary, and we are extremely uh, fortunate uh, to have him with us, and he's had a, we've enjoyed a tremendous month with him. The other uh, conversant, the other uh, leader in this conversation that we're going to invite uh, this evening is uh, Dr. John Perkins. And I'm almost certain that all of you know Dr. John. Uh, Dr. John is uh, a national leader, uh, a national uh, leader in the conversation around social justice, uh, community development. The list is extraordinary uh, in terms of the work that he has influenced and developed uh, over his 80 years. And uh, just last June, you crossed into that territory. Is that right, uh, Dr. John? So uh, 80 years. And uh, an extraordinary life. Both of them represent a, uh, an amazing body of work, and we're very fortunate to have them lead us in this conversation. So I'm going to invite uh, Dr. Darrell and Dr. John up uh, with us this evening. And, and before we get started, um, 
not only has Dr. John entered into his ninth decade on this planet, but he's also become a uh, film star, a Hollywood film star. There is a film called Let Justice Roll Down. Roll on. Okay, your book was rolled. No, okay. But anyway, we have, we have uh, a little trailer on that movie. So, Jesse, roll it. There's racism all over the country. And segregation was legal. And John was a part of that. And he knew it was wrong. I knew it was wrong. We couldn't go to movies with anyone else. We couldn't do anything that other whites over the camp bank could do. And we began to say, so enough is enough. My oldest brother had gone into the service and went to Germany uh, to fight there. Then he came home, and he was home for about six months, and he was killed in a racial incident in my town. Right, in the 60s, growing up here, total segregation. And it was in that environment of segregation that we began to dream, or at least John began to dream, and I started buying into that dream of how can we change this community from the inside out so that we can give people dignity, pride, self-worth, and self-esteem. John Perkins is a great man because he's lived out a big vision. He's focused his life around a purpose that's a big purpose. And that all of that's driven by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This makes him a big man. And he has served that purpose faithfully, with focus, with passion, with intentionality, all of his life. He is not uh, just a talker. John Perkins is a doer. He's out there getting his hands dirty, working in these little communities and literally showing people how they can help themselves to a better life. See, I grew up without a mother. I grew up without a father. I grew up without an intact family. I grew up without the institution of love. That's what a family is, is an institution of love. A man finds out he loves a woman, and they fall in love, they get married, they have a child, they nurture that child, they've been loved, and I hadn't had that. I've never seen a picture of my mother. My mother died really of starvation, seven months after I was born, and we lived in a sharecropper shack, and they said she was nothing but skin and bone. I think part of my drive in life was really to be accepted, to be loved. And I heard that there was a God in heaven who had loved me so much that he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for me. Let justice roll on. Well, uh, as a community here at UPC, we have been extremely fortunate to have both these men part be, uh, participate uh, on our leadership team. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Dr. Guter has ju is just wrapping up a month with us as our visiting theologian in residence. But four years ago, uh, Dr. John spent two months with us, January, February 2007, as our visiting pastor in residence. So both of these extraordinary leaders have uh, been in the trenches with us, have had the leadership conversations, have influenced uh, the life of this community. So it's extremely uh, fortunate for us to have both of them uh, back and not only to share in this conversation from more of a general perspective, but also to be able to speak directly uh, to the life uh, of this community. We're going to uh, 
have various segments of this conversation. And so uh, we're going to have three different uh, kind of conversational segments of one area talking about uh, the church and society, faith and culture. The second, I'm going to ask them to uh, engage in some biblical reflection with us. And then the third, to have some reflection on our congregation, our congregational life, and invite them to challenge us, uh, per- perhaps uh, highlight some opportunities that they see uh, for us. Then we're going to take a very short standing, stretching break, and we're going to open up the floor to all of you for questions. We'll have some roving uh, mic uh, folks, micers. That's not right either. I, I, I'm just having trouble with my, with my nouns. But mic folks... Uh, one is Mike. Uh, Mike will be, have a mic. And uh, we'll get the mics out to you, and you'll have an opportunity to uh, ask questions. And then we'll close the evening with, uh, with a particular commissioning question uh, that I'm going to ask uh, both of them. But, but before we get started, just uh, as kind of a warm-up, you know, we haven't, we haven't seen you for a little bit. So uh, bring us up to date a little bit. What, what, what has particularly uh, got your attention Right now, what are you working on? What are you focusing on? What's got your attention uh, at this point in your life and ministry? Uh, I'm focusing on trying to finish well. That's my focus. Uh, I have been so blessed with the uh, a quality of friends that have undergirded me during these 50 years of, of, of ministry. So I'm focused on them and what can I do in the light of what I see. And I see the, I see justice is returning back to the church. I, I believe that justice was God's motivation for redemption. I think we sort of set it aside like we probably did in the 20s and 30s or is how we set aside the Holy Spirit. And then in the late 50s, the Spirit came back to the church in terms of a practical way. Uh, I think Ray Stedman helped us understand in uh, the Spirit working in us and through us and in our bodies. And we had a difficult time of adjusting that back into the church. I think that we went a long time without Justice. We learn how to do church in America in an unjust way, segregation. And I think that we depower the gospel to deal with the big problems of life, the pain and agony of people's lives. And I think justice is returning to the church and is returning to another young generation of people being born, particularly Christian young people, and they are sort of post-racist. And they now have got to adjust justice and grace back into the church. When we've been used to not doing that, uh, we was running on without justice and running on our prosperity theology. And so now I'm focusing on trying to end in calling those young people out who haven't been tainted by, who haven't been tainted by, the right, the left, the Democrats, the liberals. Not condemning those, but not getting their point of reference from them because they have captured the church somewhat. And so I'm focused on that new generation. And, uh, and of course, 
I see church planting now. Uh, uh, new church planting that is focused on the most needed people in our society. The church has become over-professional. And, 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 and so we're not raising up courageous indigenous leaders from the neighborhood. Wow. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Guter, you're, you're wrapping up a month of being here with us. You're wrapping up a significant sabbatical time. Uh, from the university that you've been on. What are you looking forward to as you return uh, to Princeton and re-engaging your work? Well, I came to Princeton 10 years ago to start a chair called Missional and Ecumenical Theology, and <clears throat> that's been my focus. But during five of those years, to my surprise, I was asked to be academic dean. So I completed that in June, and uh, I'm grateful to have passed it on to my successor. And I'm looking forward now to returning after this sabbatical to teaching. I love your phrase, to finish well, uh, to, to teach uh, missional ecumenical theology, to further explore how do we equip future teaching elders to be equippers of congregations so that they will be faithful to their vocation, and to continue finding conversation partners that share that vision, congregations, graduates who are struggling with the challenge of how does one become a missional church in a culture which has a very different expectation of what the church is all about? Um, I think the most exciting thing I'm looking forward to is the classroom. Yeah. Both these men have uh, invested their lives deeply in the raising up of uh, kingdom-influenced leaders, and we are extremely grateful uh, to you for that. Well, let's launch, in, launch into our faith and culture uh, conversation. First question, and the rules of this, of this conversation are any question I ask is open to both of you, so whoever jumps in first gets the first shot, unless I ask you directly, and then I'll ask you. So that's, those are the rules. And then we'll have a bonus round, and then the, the 50 point, no, <laughs> So the first question is, how would, you, how would you characterize the relationship between the North American church and society currently? How would you characterize the relationship between church and society? Complicated. Uh, it's a lot of different things. A significant amount of what it means to be church is to continue traditions we brought across the Atlantic. So we've continued what we call Christendom in this country and we're struggling with its disintegration. Every mainline denomination has been losing members now for decades. At the same time, we have in the United States uh, forms of church we've invented here. We have uh, very significant movements within Christianity that are not affected by Christendom. The black church, for instance, is not a Christendom-shaped church. The Hispanic church, the Anabaptists. And uh, they have a very different story in how they relate to our society. Could you define Christendom real quick for us? Uh, Christendom is the short term for the whole project of Western Christianity from the 4th century on as it becomes the established and protected religion and religious institution of Western societies. Sometimes we say the Constantinian project. Uh, and it basically lasts from the 4th century and is in the process today of disintegrating on both sides of the North Atlantic. We have in America now a considerable part of the population that has no contact with the church, particularly here in the, in the West. We have another very large block, which I would say is inoculated former Christians, people who have rejected whatever they experienced, whatever distortion of the gospel they grew up with, 
and, uh, and they are the, perhaps the hardest mission field. And we have an enormous emergence today of, I would say, very creative, sometimes culturally questionable, new forms of church. I think it's exciting, but it's also raising its own questions. Well, our church in America has been formed basically uh, out of injustice, very shaky foundation. The, the founding fathers came up with the, the greatest statement of human dignity that had ever been created. I think it matches Genesis 1.26 where it says, In the image of God created he them, male and female created them, and that defined human being as bearing the image in the face of God in the world. The, their, the founding fathers, uh, whether they were deers or whatever they was, they was inspired to give some life and thought to that. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all human beings are created equal, as endowed by that creator with certain rights, chief among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that we were going to do a new experience. It was going to sort of reflect the kingdom of God, and that's what the church was supposed to do, is reflect the kingdom that is coming. And, and they said we were going to make it a United State of America, and that we were going to be one nation from all nations, under God with liberty and justice for all and went on to establish an apartheid religion in America. And that weakened the power of the gospel. The idea of the gospel was that it was to be that supernatural human social power that would burn through racial culture barriers. That's what Pentecost was when the church was born. Uh, and and bring people into that relationship to God and to each other. That God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And that we was to be that reconciling force, his body in the world. Really gifted to do that. Divine gifts to pull that off. We went back on that. And we created the church then based on race. And that we still, even this far along, they still say that Sunday morning is the most surrogated hour of the day. And that whole idea was based on injustice. Slavery was the most unjust system because that was to be the pattern in the Old Testament of God's power to liberate. And then we established that system here. It's damaging. It's damaging. That's what makes this day-to-day that this post young people who emerge on the scene who haven't been as damaged by that system. In the last 15 or 20 years of, of racial integration and, and we've been multiracism and those kind of things, I think that we are coming close to the possibility. But I, I don't think we can set it in the old uh, wineskin. I think the wineskin could further it along. But I think that they're going to have to have a new freedom to redeem us. And that's why I see the new church emerging. On the scene. One of the uh, one of the adjectives, I guess. You know, my grammar isn't really that good tonight. I don't, I don't know why, but um, 
is is the term one of the adjectives that that kind of contain this this intersection of church and society is the is the term evangelical and evangelical as a descriptor has been tainted um, in our society and would you say both would you both claim evangelical would you claim the evangelical tag are you both evangelicals uh, I did. There came a time in my, I was born, I was born again, saved in the, in the, in the sort of the Billy Graham revival of 57, uh, in, in LA. And so, and when I went back to Mississippi and discovered that it had accommodated racism, but the liberal church was bankrupt. And I decided then, as I went along, to be an evangelical, to try to redeem evangelicalism. And so I have always then stayed uh, as a, an evangelical in, in, in trying to redeem that body. And, and, and I thank God that I have uh, uh, survived within it and that these people have become uh, my friend. But at the same time, uh, I realize that to accommodate racism and injustice uh, was uh, was an error that we had to try to open the people's eyes to it. Well, I think evangelical is a very it has a lot of baggage, and yet it's an extremely important, historically important term. When I'm asked, I will I will say I'm evangelical, Catholic, and Reformed, which just confuses people. But that's fine because I can then explain what I mean. That's actually wording that did emerge in the 19th century as the word evangelical was getting used more and more. I think we have to remember that originally the term evangelical emerges in the time of the Reformation and it means gospel-centered. It's about the gospel and the gospel shaping the church. That's why the Reformation churches in Europe today are still called evangelical churches. And those currents come to this country and they use that term, the Lutherans, the Reformed, uh, for their churches in this country. That's happened again recently with the Lutherans. They call themselves the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. It has a kind of a complicated history, but when fundamentalism begins to make its imprint on American Christianity, evangelical begins to get used as an alternative to fundamentalism until some fundamentalists decide they like the word evangelical and they begin using it, and it, that's when the electronic church begins to use the term. And so today... It has become, I think, so difficult to use that the secular press never knows what to make out of the term. And in our conversations, we have constantly to explain what we mean. But I, I share with Dr. John the conviction that the word is too important to give up. But it's a struggle to help people understand what we mean by it. So, oh, go ahead. Yeah. As evangelicalism began to struggle, you know, let's say, during the civil rights movement, um, uh, Dr. Carl Henry uh, was able to see that, and he wrote a book, The Uneasy Consciousness of, of Evangelicalism, that there was something wrong. I would have said it, it accommodated racism and bigotry, and that minimized the uh, uh, gospel. Then, as we come to the 80s, and, and, and Jimmy Carter, uh, a Southern Baptist, but but he was not from the most extreme part of the Southern Baptist. 
finally he well and we had a president there and then following him was a, a evangelical now becomes political with political power mm-hmm. then President Ronald Reagan came and he accepted the word and it was surrounded him the evangelicals surrounded him and then at the same time you had then the electronic church the 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 Jimmy Bakers the uh, Jerry Falwells the Pat Robinson then they politicized uh, evangelicalism and really captured it captured it and so being a an evangelical and a Christian became one and the same. And, and, and so the, the social, economic, and political Christian and, and California was almost blind by it. It, it, it almost made conservatism, Republican, and Christianity was almost one and the same. And so it lost its power. It lost its power, and so it's sort of a, a, a wonderful word. I believe that I believe that the the, the Great Commission, the the evangelist, uh, the the commission to, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Uh, you should do it in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and other most parts of the world. The church is the steward of this wonderful. That's the work of the church. That's at the heart of the, the church. So the evangelical. Proclamation, witness, not to build a political kingdom with the church, but to witness to the church that a kingdom is coming, that a kingdom is coming, that there is hope that we can live together. When we see the kingdom, we see all people from all races and nationalities serving God together, and that kingdom is to come. And the gospel was to authenticate that. The gospel was to authenticate that. It authenticated at Pentecost. You know, it authenticated again at, uh, at Antioch. The church is now a mission of church. It had burnt through racial barriers. Acts 13 is a very important passage. There was that first mission of church, that, that in that church, the names of the leadership there reflects the culture and the race and the nationalities of the people. There was there in the church certain leaders on equal footing, Black, white represented that culture. Now we got a church now that's authentic. Now the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit can speak and say, we got a church now that we can carry to the world. It can burn through racial and culture barriers. These will be the signs and the wonders. Uh, the, 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 a person born into the kingdom of God is the greatest miracle. It's a new birth. It's, it's a dead person coming alive. Uh, again, again, and that's stronger than that's stronger than healing, and all healing is an important part of it. But this is stronger than healing, and this was to be the great sign of what the gospel could accomplish in the lives of, of people. Well, we have compromised that. If you could reclaim that word for its intended purpose, what would be some of the biblical marks of evangelicalism? If you could. Take that word back from the hijackers and the hostage takers. How would you reinfuse that word with meaning, with biblical meaning, that would reclaim it for us? I'd certainly start by saying the gospel is about God's reign. 
the kingdom of God present in Jesus Christ. And by emphasizing that, I would be emphasizing that the gospel is not just about that narrow vertical line relating me to God and God to me, but is about God's work, purposeful work to redeem, to save, to heal the world, and calling me and us into service uh, as agents, as first fruits, as signs of that good news. I mean, that's, the gospel's got to be good news to the world, and that's what we're supposed to be representing. And so I would stress that the gospel is about God's healing purposes accomplished in Christ for the whole world, and we're the ones called to be its evidence, its witnesses in the world. Yes, yes, we are we reflecting that, mm-hmm. and that we are sharing that, and we're becoming a, a community of people. Uh, it was the, the church was to be a church in a place. Mm-hmm. Place. Yeah. The church is more or less now a commuter institution. We, we could change that. We, we, we got the electronic possibility. We got the way to do that by putting people into household groups. But there, we've lost community. Mm-hmm. We've lost community. And so the Sunday morning becomes the worship center. And it don't make much chance for the church to be alive at work in the lives of people we, in our society. That would be the sign that we'd be engaged. We'd be engaged in sharing this uh, good news and sending and establishing and going. Both of you travel quite a bit. You get, you're in a lot of churches. Um, as you look out across the spectrum of church life, and ministry, what do you see out there that particularly perplexes you or discourages you? I go with it. Let me go with that. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Take a wh- shot, Doctor. Prosperity theology Amen. is serving God what you can personally get. We have over personalized Christianity, and we make God our sugar tip. Mm. And we're serving God for what we can do. We ought to be serving God. Salvation is a past event. Redemption is a finished work. And we should be serving God out of gratitude for what he's done. And also gratitude out of what he's doing in our lives. That people can see that. That we are living by faith. We are trusting him in our, in our society. But it works itself out in a deadly way. In the urban community where I live, it's, a, it's, it's, it's deadly. It's participating in the poverty of people. It's creating uh, payday loans. It's got people living from day to day, and it's got our people enslaved again. And this enslavement is a self-addiction, self-addiction with consumerism. Consumerism and entertainment joy. Mm-hmm. I get um, I find it pretty depressing to come across churches whose only reason to exist is to maintain this institution with very little sense of what it's for but it just or to fulfill a social or a cultural role I find it discouraging uh, to encounter churches that focus solely on the savedness of their own members. They exist to maintain the savedness of their members and they've reduced salvation to that very narrow line and they really don't they ignore their vocation to be the 
evidence of God's love for the whole world. This inward turning church instead of outward turn church. Um, I think any, I, I hark back to, to Jim Rayburn, uh, who founded Young Life. I said, churches that simply bore people with the gospel. I mean, I think that's just incomprehensible to me that this incredible good news can be made so boring, or even worse, can be made bad news. You know, people who talk about a gospel of love but proclaim it hatefully, or a gospel of peace and they proclaim it divisively, that incongruence that you find so often in, in, in churches, that's just, that's very depressing. Yeah. When you proclaim the good news, basically as it comes from the scripture and the invitation that God makes to us, mm-hmm. we see it as robbing us of something. Yeah. When, when, when I'm preaching and I would say something like, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. People squeeze like you fit. They feel to be punished. Uh, uh, it's a great invitation to, it's not a denying of yourself. It's putting yourself in the hands of a God who says, that, I love you. And nothing can separate you from the love of God. Death, nothing can separate you from it. And if you seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, all the things that you need to seek that righteousness with, this is a great invitation to God. We think it's an invitation to punishment. Uh, God says, uh, I have a plan for your life. The plan is for good. And it won't hurt you. It's for your prosperity. It's to give you a future. And I hope the great invitation, people squeeze from that invitation uh, because they are now conformed and getting their information from the world. Right. And he said, be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you can know what is that good, acceptable and perfect will of God. And so we are afraid of God. We, 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 we want God to do something for us. But we don't have a sense of gratitude for what he's done and what he's doing. Well, on the flip side then, so we, we talked a little bit about what, what, what expressions might discourage us. But where, where are the signs of hope? What do you see out there that encourages you about the church's engagement in society and communities? Yeah. This, this new, I don't like to name it. Because if you name it, then we're going to call it Neo-Oxodoc. We're going to give it a name, something that we can condemn it. So I don't want to name it too quickly. But this, this new emerging church, these young people that we are calling out, these young folks who care for the whole of creation, that I'm a great old conservative, we didn't care about the environment. We could pause an environment. You know, environmentalists was something, uh, they didn't care about the water. They didn't care about the health of people. You, you know, and the well-being. This new people who concern about the whole creation, concern about uh, clean water, health care, and concern about uh, uh, the whole person who are ready to attack the aid problem. And, and, and these big, uh, major, Pain for issue. Christianity was to enter into the pain of the people. And we got young folks now. That's a good sign. Who's ready to enter into the pain and the suffering of people. 
and be partners with them in the community. That's a great sign mm -hmm. that encourages me. I'm very encouraged by the fact that in the last century, Christianity has truly become a global movement, mm -hmm. that the gospel is truly being proclaimed and lived out in every culture in the world, and that, the, that there are tremendously dynamic expressions of Christian commitment and witness in totally non-Western contexts from which we can, I think, learn more and more. I'm encouraged that there are congregations in this country, and I have the chance to encounter them, that really are willing to face the fact that for us Christendom is over, we're in a hard mission field, and God is converting us. We're becoming a different kind of church. And one of the evidences of those that I agree with you on this is the emergence of new and experimental and risking forms of church. There's obviously going to be some wonders in that process, but some really exciting uh, attempts to be open to God shaping the church in different ways from what we've inherited. At the same time, I do think that we're seeing also signs of conversion in the inherited forms. I talk to my students about the passage we're in on the North Atlantic as a compost heap passage. It really stinks, and it's messy, and it's smelly, but it's very, very generative. So God is doing new things on both sides of the North Atlantic, uh, and I think we have to be alert to that and join it. Yeah. Um, are questions forming out there? Are you starting to form some, form some questions? Keep working on them. We'll get with you in just a, a few minutes. I want to shift. Um, I'm going to uh, give you both uh, an opportunity to preach. Uh, a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, you may have gone ahead of us a little bit there, Dr. Chen. Uh, I'm going to invite you both to, to share some biblical reflections. And, and what I would like for you, and, and take some time with this, because this, I think what you're about to share is just really uh, formative uh, for us. So I, I'd like to ask you to, to reflect on this. What are uh, two, three, four key biblical themes and some scriptural texts that you would point us to that would inform us in our witness and our service as we're sent out into the communities and the context that God has sent us to. Key themes, mm -hmm. key biblical texts. Go ahead, preach. I discipleship Paul put it say, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what for instruction in righteousness for rebuke encourage so that the people of God would be thoroughly furnished to do the good work of letting our light shine so that people might see our good works and glorify the Father, mm -hmm. which is in heaven. Amen. And so putting that faith and works back mm -hmm. together and to see our faith is made strong by the evidence of good works. Mm -hmm. I, I, I see that in AIDS. The church attacked AIDS. Mm -hmm. 
in our own lifetime. This was an impossible, looked like an impossible situation. I saw the church attack the, the, the outcome of Katrina. The church was at its best from all over America. I, I watched that uh, uh, happen. So, so I would say that discipleship, what we are doing, uh, discipleship should be the equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, developing in us our character and integrity. That's what Galatians uh, 5 is about. It's about developing the fruit of the Spirit and then develop, developing the endurance to overcome the lust of this world. It shows what the lust bring. It shows what the fruit of the Spirit bring. Love, joy, peace, perseverance. Perseverance in, in, in life. And the thing... I was, when I was converted, I was discipled by an old Presbyterian elder. And I'm grateful and thankful. An old white Presbyterian elder. Are there any other kind? Who, who, not many. (laughs) Who, who, who discipled me. But he discipled me around the, 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 the important texts that you're talking about here. He, he discipled me that Jesus was alive. And the, in, the disciples live with that alive and expectation of him returning. Mm-hmm. And so it created a sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. We don't know when that's going to happen. And they was entrusted with the gospel to go into all the world and to preach that, that gospel. And so the ministry of the ministry is to spread that good news word. And, the, and the, that gospel... It, it was to spread that gospel, which is central message of the Bible. That's the central, such the scripture. For in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. God was in Christ, reconciling the world. He helped me to understand that. He also helped me to understand the church's role. That they went out and they planted churches, congregations. They created the beloved community there in the community. And the text that helped me with that was Second Timothy 2.2, where Paul says to Timothy, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the thing that you've heard of me among many witnesses, that you commit unto faithful men and women, who shall be able to teach others also, is that teaching, it is that discipling of others. Now we make them Christian, and if we can disciple them, we'll disciple them. And so now we make things Christian uh, instead of people. We make rap Christian. (laughs) We make, uh, uh, if I get a necktie, I put a cross on it, and I become a Christian necktie. (laughs) <laughs> and we skip the discipleship. They call them Christian 15 or 20 years. That when they went through the pain and the suffering and being removed from Jerusalem. And as they scattered, they rehulled and they began to behave like a community. And that was in Antioch. 
And the church broke through racial barriers again. Now we have a church for the world. And so they send them out into the world. Amen to all of that. I want to build right on it. Yeah. Because he made this important point, and I think it is crucial that the apostolic strategy was not to go out and save souls. It was to go out and form witnessing communities. And the apostolic ministry was to shape them so they could be credible witnesses. And I think that theme is, is so powerful. It's in Paul, it's six or seven times he talks about how the commu- this community is to lead its public life, how it is to walk worthy of Jesus Christ, worthy of the gospel, worthy of its calling, which means communities of integrity, communities that don't separate my salvation from God's justice for the world, which is a complete reduction of the gospel. This emphasis upon the congruence of the life of the community with the message that it proclaims. Uh, I find that all, all of the imperatives in the New Testament epistles are basically instructions for the formation of a witnessing community that can really function as light, leaven, and salt. And I agree with the emphasis upon discipleship, reading the Gospels with the understanding that we're learning there. We go to school with the disciples to be trained by Jesus so that we can be a part of his apostolate, so that we can be sent out ones. Um, and then you, you've, you quoted the text from Romans 12, too. I, I think that is so crucial that uh, we, particularly as we're coming to the end of Christendom, that we confront the challenge that we no longer be conformed to this world. Christendom has conformed us to reductionist gospel, reductionist view of the church. We need to be transformed by learning. It's like a converted intelligence by a transformed way of thinking that is enabled because we're informed by God's word and empowered by God's spirit to then know what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. And, and, and Peter, as the churches scattered from Jerusalem as far as he was concerned, and the people that lost the glory of the David-Solomon mm-hmm. worship, they were looking for an identity. And, and Peter, first he says there in Second Peter, in an opening, he says the same thing that Paul says about how our character shape. And he said if he repeats Paul's fruit of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And he said if these be in you, and he named them, love, joy, peace, perseverance. If they be in you, you will succeed. And then he identifies them. He said, you are a royal priesthood. Mm-hmm. You are a chosen generation. Mm-hmm. You are special people. And you should show forth the praise of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. We was to be a witness, mm-hmm. a special people. Mennonites try to do that, wonderful. Uh, Amish try to do that, wonderful. We have entangled ourselves with the affairs of this world and that we have lost an identity. Identity. Who are we? Peter saying, you're a royal priesthood. You're a chosen generation. Fantastic. Uh, one, one more line of question, and then we'll open it up to your questions uh, here in just a moment. But I, I'd like to invite you both, both as part of our leadership team over the last month and over the years, uh, to... Share some reflections about UPC. 
uh, about this, this community and what you have discovered here. Uh, I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and you can, ask, you can, answer, you can respond to what, whatever combination of them or individual one you'd like. But uh, I guess the line of my question would be, what have you discovered uh, about this place? What strengths or weaknesses should we pay particular attention to? What challenges or opportunities would you point us towards? Answer any or all of those. I tried. I was here first. Yes, you were. You go ahead. <laughs> I was here the longest. What encouraged me was that you are here. You are here in the midst of this university. You are here at this time in history. You are here. You didn't run off. You stayed here. I think that's your present. Present. When I was here, you was having a time putting 800 children and where you going to disciple them at. This is an old church building. This is an old institution. But when you got 800 children, it's alive. It's alive. You are planting churches. Downtown, I went to the church downtown. Uh, uh, I saw, uh, I saw some life here, and I see such opportunity here. And these businessmen who joined with me is they bought these houses here, working with these students in the community, raising them up. Them up. And even some of those businessmen are benefiting greatly by nurturing those students because they're joining, joining their law firm mm -hmm. and others to be sought in light in this community. Why and those same group of guys is down in Latin America working with some of the poorest people in the country. Uh, that was a, that this is a, a, a base, a sort of a luncheon base. Uh, for the mission there in Bendet, he was going back to Europe, and that you was involved heavily in the aid deal, like all of us. And you was, I got here after Katrina, so uh, that's what sort of thrilled me that you was an old church, uh, and that you was old in in age, but you was but you was uh, alive. That really encouraged me, alive with. Resources in this case, resources are people. Two thousand people worshiping here uh, on the Sunday morning, yep. during the Sunday, Saturday and Sunday service was encouraging. I had been very, very uh, impressed by the um, the creativity that I creativity about ministry that I've experienced. So many different groups and people addressing challenges both here in Seattle and beyond and the permission that this community gives to its members to develop uh, these ministries, this outreach, I think that's remarkable. I've long been aware of this church and its powerful uh, emphasis upon biblical preaching that goes back decades. I think it's a real key to your spiritual health. I was uh, 
impressed by your hospitality, certainly by the food you serve. Uh, and, uh, and the way, uh, coming from Princeton Seminary, the way that you, generation after generation, continue to draw out uh, wonderful men and women to provide leadership for the church because we keep seeing them on the seminary campus. I mean, you're still the church that sends the most people to Princeton Seminary of any congregation. I think those are all very remarkable signs of God's blessing at work through this community. What word of challenge or exhortation would you give us? Where do we need to pay particular attention? Well, I'll, I'll start Go ahead. with Go with that one. He's been that, here the most recent. Yeah. So. Well, because it connects. It connects yeah. to what I just said. Because yeah. that creativity means that I also perceive, and I know this is a bit superficial, I've only been here four weeks, but it seems to me this church is almost a, a cluster of congregations, a lot of different congregations. And that one of the challenges is how do you present a witness to Seattle and beyond that you are one called community, carrying out your vocation in a wonderful diversity of ways. I, I think that the, the unity of the church is one of the most challenging and problematic issues that face us, particularly as heirs of Christendom. And I think you have a wonderful opportunity to, uh, to uh, gl glory in and fully exploit this diversity of approaches, and at the same time to let that together be a witness to a common calling, a common Lord, calling, common conviction, common hope. Uh, I think that is something from which all of us could benefit. Wow, that's good. Uh, I, uh, the fact that you have 2,000 people in household groups the, the possibility of releasing that power and put them in zip codes and, and make this uh, household groups to make them a little bit more evangelistic where they would invite their neighbors. They should be, go beyond just our study groups, but they become evangelistic outposts where they can begin to then uh, draw people and I think it's important that we come up with creative ways to maintain the unity not just spread them out and let them be anything I think the unity should be shown by love for each other and our desire to be together and our desire to have some big form of jubilee some some sense of unity and I think that's I think that is a fear to stop people from doing it but I think that we have to take the risk of doing that and, and, and come up with ways. And I believe that we have ways that we can do that now, electronically. Just illustrate it. Um, I preached at a church a few weeks ago. It, it, they have two buildings. They don't have big building, zoning and all that stopping them from doing it. But they have two gyms, but they have five congregations going on at the same time. And they're piping. They have ministers who do everything of the service of the people. And then they pipe in the one preacher. I was preaching to all five of those congregations at the, at the same time. That, well, that helps to bring unity. That helps to bring the body together and to keep their speaking the same thing, you know, to the people. And they can do all their other household stuff individually. They sang together. 
individually and do the worship that they pray together and then they got that unit. I think that's an important element to keep the unity of the faith. And this is an example. To me, this is a, a blessing that this church is involved in. Thank you so much. We're going to we're going to transition here. We're going to take a quick break right where you are. I'm going to invite everyone to stand up and stretch. Just get the blood moving again. And while you're doing that, we're going to invite our mic people. One of them being Mike. Right back. And uh, we're going to... Uh, you can start thinking about some questions. But go ahead and stretch and visit for a minute. Let's take five minutes just to kind of regroup.